I would start with a mission statement. You know, if you can't tell me what your show is in one paragraph, then you haven't thought it through enough. Um, I take a lot that I learned working in the Valley about pitching companies and elevator pitches. You know, I teach that to my students and they're, they're often like, why am I learning this? I'm trying to make podcasts. It's like, well, you want to make podcasts or you want to make podcasts for people that want to listen to you. Hey everyone, welcome to Supercasters. I'm Jason Suhoy, co-founder and CEO of Supercast. And on this show, we interview world-class podcasters, deconstruct their growth strategies, and find out how they build sustainable, independent businesses that thrive on a strong relationship with their listeners. Today, I'm speaking to the nicest guy in podcasting. <laughs> Maddie Stout's the president of Jam Street Media a premium podcast production company based in LA that creates original podcasts for brands and the entertainment industry. From morning show radio host to the founding director of content at Stitcher to launching 300 plus podcasts for iHeartRadio, Maddie's a true pioneer in the podcasting industry, as well as being a passionate teacher. He created the nation's first university-level podcasting department for the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. So whether it's developing original shows, coaching talent, or planning podcast strategy for hundreds of shows at once, Maddie's a wealth of experience. And in this episode, you're going to get unique insight into what a podcast coach sees and what most people are doing wrong with their podcasts, myself included. So without further ado, Maddie, welcome to the show. Hey, buddy. Good to be on. It's neat to see you behind the microphone. We've done a couple Zooms together, but it's, it's great to, to hear that uh, awesome voice doing a podcast. <laughs> You're too kind. So maybe you could wind back the clock for us a little bit, you know, and tell us a bit about, you know, the radio days and how that led into the wonderful world of podcasting. Um, sure. I, I was one of those really aggro kids about radio. I would call radio stations up and request songs over and over and over again. Uh, I had a, a tape deck. I would record radio shows and I would make my own shows. I think my mom has a tape or before she passed, she had a tape of me at age 10 doing a parody radio show. So I was always into radio. My mom listened to Howard Stern. I was just like, I, you know, when he was just on in DC and I was like, I really want to go and do that. Um, so when I was 16, I got a driver's license. I lived in a little town in West Virginia. We had a very small radio station that was an AM station, uh, and an FM rock station. And the AM station, I walked in and said, I'll do whatever. And they gave me a, a Sunday morning, 6am shift where I put, um, a needle on an album called the sounds of Sinatra. It was a show. And I did the weather. Um, uh, my first day I, I said the word, uh, can I curse on your podcast? Or? Yeah, go for it. So I said shit three times into a microphone, very first day on the air. Uh, and the boss came in and just was so cool. He turned off the microphone and he said, are you ever going to do that again? And I'm like, no. And then he came back <laughs> and he said, what, the, what was the first thing I did? And I said, you turned off the microphone. He goes, exactly. Always turn the microphone off first. So uh, from there, I graduated high school and I, I went to West Virginia University and I it was turned down by the campus radio station because I'd been doing regular radio and I guess they thought I had too much experience and I got lucky the uh, biggest rock station in the state hired me and I did rock radio all through college paid for beers books all that by being a DJ uh, mm -hmm. when I was in college and when I graduated I was working at a country station uh, I was sending resumes out to anybody who would take a resume and I, I had sent an intern to Washington DC uh, to an FM talk station there was brand new it was just, you know they just put Howard Stern on and th these other shows that I really liked and sh while she was there one of the producers for the G Gordon Liddy show quit and I drove to D.C. and just basically talked my way into a job. I took a pay cut from West Virginia 
to go work in D.C. And it worked out for me because the PD of the station, Jeremy Coleman, who was now the president of the Howard Stern Network, he took me under his wing. I ended up in New York City. I had a morning show there, produced a bunch of shows there, and then oh, ended up in San Francisco where I had the number one uh, morning show for six years until I decided I was bored with getting up at four in the morning and I wanted to try mm-hmm. something to do. All I'd ever done is radio. And there was these four guys that started this company called Stitcher. And I was just like, what's a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) But sign me up, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, nice. You know, what was your role at Stitcher? So when I got there, it was pretty obvious that these guys understood tech, but not content. And I sourced all the content, all the first podcasts. There's a lot of podcasters out there who've been around a long time who remember getting emails from me and asking them, hey, can I put you on Stitcher? So I did that. I created all the stations for Stitcher. It was a lot of fun. But in the early days, you know, we were a tech startup. It was a tech company, you know, it wasn't real content driven. So I was getting antsy to do content and I I left Stitcher after three years to go work for a brief period of time with Kevin Smith here in LA before ending up going back to San Francisco and starting the university program and just starting my own kind of podcast consulting and coaching, you know, business then, which, you know, I tell everybody, you know, there's so many people in the business now who weren't in the business three years ago. And they certainly weren't in the business 10 years ago when we had, like, everybody thought we were idiots for getting into podcasting. Every mm-hmm. radio person in the world asked me, why would I not go back and do mornings again? Why would I leave, you know, a really good gig to go do podcasting? And I couldn't, honestly, at the time, I couldn't give him a good answer because I didn't know either. I was like, I don't know. I, I, I like it. I think it's going to be something big. I always believed in it. But it was really hard to stick with it during the drought uh, up until Serial. Like serial changed things a lot for a lot of us, but, uh, but it was really, you know, a tough go for, for anybody who wanted to be uh, making money in podcasting. And I somehow have always, you know, the last 14 years been able to make a career and, and a living off of podcasting, but it was not easy back then. Yeah. I remember Stitcher was certainly my gateway into, you know, podcasting was the first podcast player I ever downloaded. Do you remember you know, back in those days, what were the genres that were doing well in podcasting? What what were the kinds of shows that, you know, you were prioritizing to get onto the platform? Anything about Max. Anything about Max wow. was always big. They were like the big shows that we had. I, I hosted a Macworld show and I hosted one for, uh, we did something for TechCrunch. So it was a lot of tech people that really liked podcasts. The first deal that we signed, a partnership was with NPR. And that just made sense. And it's funny, you know, because when NPR got into podcasting, they were the same arguments that I heard when I started podcasting at iHeart, which is, well, people won't listen to the radio now and, and we're going to lose listeners. And, and, and I, you know, when I was at iHeart, I kept pointing back to NPR and going just the opposite. It's increased listenership. You know, there are people who find NPR through podcasts now, and now NPR makes as much money from podcasting as it does from their stations. So, you know, that was the smart bet, but still terrestrial radio and to this day, like I just got an email back from some guy uh, on LinkedIn and he's like, oh, I work in radio. I'm not interested in podcasting. And it's like, you're a dinosaur, dude. Good luck. Your career is not going to be very good if that's your attitude. But that still was the attitude with a lot of folks. And any content that was out there, we would put on Stitcher. But the shows were very long. And even going back to when I used to teach podcasting, the first shows that I made my students do were all an hour because that was kind of standard back then. It was an hour at least for a show, right. um, you know, as compared to now where if you to go over 40 minutes, I'm going to slap your wrist until you've gone on too long. So mm-hmm. it's changed quite a bit. But yeah, long shows, tech shows. There's still some of the guys out there that have that they're still doing the same podcast. And I, I always like running into them at like podcast movement and stuff. 
Yeah, and then tell us a little bit about your role at iHeart. You know, what was the situation, you know, when you arrived there? And, you know, obviously, you know, you had 300 plus shows, you know, under your, your belt. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing there on a day-to-day basis? Well, when they hired me at iHeart, they hired me because they wanted me to run digital for San Francisco for that market. And I agreed to do that with the caveat that I could do whatever I wanted with podcasts because they really weren't doing anything with podcasts. They were keeping all their podcasts just on a hair radio. There just wasn't a, a real strategy to them yet. During that first year, I created about 40 shows in San Francisco alone. And mm-hmm. we launched, and our numbers were really good. And was this just syndicating kind of like radio shows onto podcasts, or was it more than that? Both. But for me, it was creating new podcasts, and mostly creating after shows. So I created the first podcast after show of a radio show 14 years ago. So when I left my morning show, they were complaining because after I left, the PD wouldn't let them talk about as many things and it was really annoying them. And I said, why don't you start a podcast after the show, go say whatever you want, curse, do all that. And that show was very successful, millions of downloads. So when right. I got to iHeart, I'm like, we need every morning show to do this because it's good for the brand. It's good. People want that extra content. And, and if you can give that to them, you're just making your brand better. So that was my dogma. And after I did that, they gave me the whole country. So I went around to every radio market, mostly just the top 25 markets, and started podcasts with the radio talent. Um, and then when we had, you know, how stuff works came in, I did a lot of liaison more stuff because I always tell people I speak both languages. I speak radio and I speak podcasting. And mm-hmm. it, there's not a lot of people that can speak both because the, the two worlds haven't mixed as much as they are now. Now, yes. But back, you know, three years ago, there wasn't anybody who was like, could like go to a program director of a radio station and really explain to them why it was important to do podcasting because their mindset is it's going to hurt ratings. I'm all about ratings. I get paid for ratings. I don't get paid for podcasts, but Mm -hmm. that, that was short-sighted as a lot of things have been with radio and it's why the business is, is hurting right now. You know, that's what I did and, and I had a great time doing it. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that, I mean, that's that whole idea of bonus content being seeded right there, right? You know, that transition from what's on the morning show, the main segment of it, to then, you know, hey, come and listen to the unfiltered extra content afterwards. That is, you know, where where you get a, a true piece of what's on the host's minds, I guess. And unfortunately, with radio, especially if you're not on a morning show, your talk time is, what, 10 seconds, maybe, mm. if you're lucky. You know, it's just a different world. And I get into why that is, but I... I <laughs> the, yeah. the whole rating system and all of that but it hurt radio i think and, and it's why so many radio listeners flock to podcasts now it's why people like myself who did fm talk radio went into podcasting or sirius xm pretty much everybody i worked with in new york either went to sirius xm or is now in podcasting and who's left behind you know like do you think you know that all of the the smart minds in radio you know the people that you know in front of the curve you know they've already left and therefore like you say they're already on a podcast a digital first platform or do you think there's a still a lot of that transition still to come I think that when it comes to talent there's still a lot of great talent in radio I I think that they're getting stretched though if you used to do a shift you did a shift in one market and that was it. Now you're doing a shift and you're doing maybe 10 other markets. And that's really like what's happening to the good talent. They're getting stretched. But they're also, you know, they're they're using the radio to enhance their digital platform. So their social media, their podcast. Uh, I think a lot of the smart people have learned that. I think that's still very powerful. I mean, if you're in radio, you still have a giant microphone or, you know, a uh, megaphone to get the word out to people about things, including Absolutely. your own stuff. So I think radio is still very powerful. And, and I think there are a lot of really smart people in radios still, I think that, 
you know, radio is adapting. I think iHeart by far just kind of way ahead of the curve for the other companies, but they're kind of showing the way. I mean, it's a shame that there's been so many people lost jobs in radio, but that was going to happen. Unfortunately, I think COVID was kind of a, a rip the bandaid off kind of situation where it was like, all right, we're going to have to scale down anyway. So let's just do it. Um, I hate that. I hate to see, you know, radio people go. I don't think there's much of a farm system left for young people. I was 16, walked into a radio station and got a job. That doesn't happen mm-hmm. ever anymore. There's no way mm-hmm. a 16 year old is ever getting on the air at a radio station. Uh, so that's, that's the tough part. Yeah, absolutely. And then Gem Street Media, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, how that came about. Yeah. So when I was at iHeart, I saw that there was a need for a lot of, uh, you know, we had brands coming to us that wanted to do podcasts, but there was only one or two companies out there making them. I was making them with a smaller company called Maddie Media that I was doing on the side. And then Steve Pratt at Pacific Content is the godfather of branded content. And he actually took me under his wing and showed me a lot of things and uh, actually gave me my first client. So the, originally I left with someone from the television film world to start a branded company couple months in realized as a lot of people do when they have a new partner it didn't work out she wasn't as into podcasting as I was or I decided that you know I was just going to kind of take the company and, and take it in a different direction um, and you know we were working on branded deals up until February and then COVID hit I have this team of amazing producers most of which are former students of mine I've always had people coming to me wanting me to do shows for them or give, you know, they had IP and I was like, let's just do that. Let's, let's just, we're going to work for free. We're going to put out some shows just to show that we can build these shows and do it over three months. We got together four shows, put them out. And, you know, we had a half million downloads within two months, you know, on these shows without any paid promotion or any funding, which is shown that we can do that. So it's going to make it easier for us to get funding down the road. But yeah, you know, I think that there's not a lot of companies that make good premium podcasts that know how to do storytelling, that know how to do uh, really work with entertainers to make a podcast that is not just them and their celebrity friends talking about nothing. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's the kind of stuff that drives me is to make sure that, you know, we make podcasts that uh, hit my three E's, empathy, education, and entertainment. And I think when you hit the three E's, you've got something good and we know how to make those good podcasts. So, you know, we've got a lot of really cool IP that's been kind of dropping in onto me and, and in LA in particular, you know, there's a lot of projects that are out there that aren't going to get made right now. And if we can make those into podcasts and they're successful, well, that makes them selling that idea to a Netflix or an HBO a lot easier because they have a track record of, Hey, this podcast did 10 million downloads. So that's kind of the future of the business that I'm creating. And I think is the future of a lot of podcast companies. I think Wondery's kind of led the way on that and we're, we're kind of following the lead. Yeah. Interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. The shows that you have already played a hand in helping produce, how did you meet those hosts and, you know, who pitched who, you know, did they come purely to you or did you see the potential and, and, you know, take the idea of doing a podcast to them? I'll tell you a couple of them, but one of the one I think I like the most is deep cover, the real Donnie Brasco. So if you don't know, Joe Pistone is Donnie Brasco. He went undercover. He is still has a hit out on him from the mob when I was in Philadelphia working uh, at iHeart Philadelphia for a few days, I, I met a guy and he was like, yeah, we were talking to this guy, Joe Fistone, about doing his podcast. I'm like, I'm in. Tell me all about it. They started recording some episodes and there wasn't anything happening. They weren't even, you know, they didn't put it out or anything. And when I started Jam Street, I get a call from a guy in Philly and he's like, hey, listen, we heard you're a stand-up guy. Joe's heard you're a stand-up guy. We'd like to work with you if we could. 
and if you get to know Joe Pistone, if if Joe Pistone thinks you're stand up or, you know, or you're you're like one of us, that's what he says about his if you're a friend, you're one of us. It's yeah. a big deal. Like people treat him like a, like like he's a mafia don. Like really, like Joe is like, you know, right. cuz Joe doesn't talk like he doesn't mince words. You're just you, you totally. know where you stand with this dude. So yeah, you gotta, so you that, gotta live up to it at that point. Yeah, <laughs> so else. that way, I guess the little the little Italian kid from West Virginia must have made a good impression on somebody. That's how that one happened. And then the other one, you know, our other big podcast is the Big Swing with Ross Stripling, who's a pitcher uh, from the Dodgers and now the Blue Jays. But he he was working with iHeart on some stuff and had come to me for some coaching. And I really like Ross a lot. I see a ton of potential in Ross. In fact, we're, we're developing another podcast just around Ross. So when we launched, that was one of my first calls was like, hey, let me take your podcast. Let me fix it the way I want to fix it. And let's 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 distribute it and get it out there. My producer brought Vanessa Umde to us, who is the Rihanna of Africa. And so that podcast had one season. It had done really well uh, in Africa. And uh, our season two was top 10 in Africa. And we've had a couple more kind of come in through you know, friends and people that have heard. I've got a couple coming in from a couple producers in Hollywood that somebody knew somebody. The Deep Cover, and actually when you have a podcast that people like, so like mm. Deep Cover, people love it. It's got like a 100% listen-through rate. 100% listen-through rate. It's it's. I've never had a show that, wow, that's that had that. And it's brought me other folks. So I've had other people who are celebrities who listen to that show and are like, hey, if you can do that for these guys and make it sound this good, can you do that for me? So mm. I think that, you know, when you make good stuff people will come to you. I'm very upfront and straightforward with people, you know, especially new ones and letting them know, Hey, we're a small company. This is what we can do. We're going to give you really good, uh, service, but you know, just know we're not iHeart. you know, we're not going to be able to pull trigger and have 300,000 people. Listen, everyone who's come on board with us is willing to grow with us. And I think that's, uh, it says a lot about my team and, and, and our company that so many people put their trust in us to do that. Absolutely. You know, being a small team, I'm sure you also have to be, you know, selective about which projects you get involved with. What are the things that you are looking for? You have these deals from time to time. You mentioned the three E's. Like, how does someone catch your attention and how do you realize, you know, like, okay, I've got something I can work with here? Well, I want something unique and I want to tell stories that haven't been told. Um, You know, we have two podcasts that we're in development on uh, that are about big crimes. So one of them is called Defending Dahmer. And it's not about, I have the, the person who covered from the very first time the police showed up, she covered the whole thing and wrote a book. And we're not telling the story of Jeffrey Dahmer. We're telling the story about his defense attorney and what it's mm-hmm. like to defend a monster. Like, that's what I look for is like, give me something that like people might know, but like, I want to tell a story that's not been told about that story. Um, and just raw talent. I mean, I've worked enough with talent and done enough talent coaching that I can listen to something in a few minutes and tell you, okay, this person's got something. This person does not have something. I would say that the majority of inbounds you get, if you're a podcast company are not great. They read all the articles about starting your own podcast and and they've started one, Mm. but they haven't put a lot of time into thinking about target audience and really like how they're going to grow their show, you know, what their episode structures are going to be, you know, all the things that, that we do when we, you know, work with talent and coach them. We look for more podcasts that have good IP 
So I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm looking for podcasts that I, I, I look at and go, okay, this is something that could be made. And then also when we have that, then sometimes we need to find the talent to go with that podcast. Like, you know, we've got a podcast about underprivileged Olympians and we're looking for a former Olympian to be the host. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, I, I don't know how you want to look at this right now. There is just a, a celebrity fever in podcasts. So if you have a celebrity attached, it makes it a lot easier to sell the podcast and get it going. You know, some of companies do it really well. Uh, Wondery's done a good job with that. You know, they don't really think the idea through and it's just they kind of let the celebrity run rough shot and like go with their idea, which is something you have to be able to like rein people in and go, listen, I know what people will listen to and I know that you and your friends are funny to you, but you might not be funny to anybody else. Um, I always give the Amy Schumer example. Amy Schumer's first podcast for Spotify was horrendous because it sounded like, hey, this is what we think a podcast should sound like. Let's take you and four of your friends and put them in a room and and talk about whatever. No knock on Amy Schumer. She's a very funny person, but that was just an ill-conceived concept because it wasn't strong. It didn't really highlight what she's good at. I didn't think so. And that one made the rounds for a lot of us in the industry, and we're like, yeah, this is not good. But... Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm going to get crap from Amy Schumer's people, but here, anyway. <laughs> All right. So tell us a little bit about the the Maddie Stout formula then. So you know, as you're bringing on board one of those shows, you know, what are the what are the things you're thinking about in terms of how that show gets created or relaunched or you know whatever it is that you're, that you're doing. I always start with a mission statement. You know, if you can't tell me what your show is in one paragraph, then you haven't thought it through enough. Um, mm-hmm. I take a lot that I learned working in the Valley about pitching companies and elevator pitches. You know, I teach that to my students and they're, they're often like, why am I learning this? I'm trying to make podcasts. It's like, well, you want to make podcasts or you want to make podcasts for people that want to listen to. So, mm-hmm. you know, we always look at, you know, who's the target audience? What's the mission statement of the show? And then, you know, if it's a serial podcast, if it's something we're going to do as a, as a series, you know, then we start mapping out what each episode is, what's going to be the cliffhanger, what's going to keep it going to the next one. We do all of that before we even start recording anything you know there's a lot of work that gets done on paper before we ever get to a microphone Um, and I think a lot of people don't spend enough time with that prep and making sure that you know doing test episodes and knowing that you may get three episodes into a podcast and decide we need to change this and do this before we launch it. So that's one thing I have to do sometimes with a lot of folks is kind of calm them down on, you know, they are like, I want to, I got an episode done. Let's release it. And it's like, no, 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 no. We need at least three. I want to, I got to make sure this is going to work and we're putting the right stuff out. Yeah. Interesting. And how about, you know, growing traffic, you know, once you've launched it, let's say those three episodes, how do you think about, you know, the key levers to, to continuing that growth. Well, that's the tricky part. And that's the part that, you know, is the hardest for most people. Some of our podcasts, we had a celebrity attached and, you know, and, and it's a lot easier. You tap into their fan base first and then you go there. Um, for the Donnie Brasco, what we did is we really targeted people who like mafia stuff, spent very little money on a Facebook campaign to reach those people with really good targeted content for them, videos, all kinds of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And that worked out really well. So that one I'm probably the proudest of because we built a really big audience with that podcast without any, like Joe, none of the hosts have social media. They're not guys that like, you know, can pull a trigger and everybody pull a lever and have like a hundred thousand people tune in. (laughs) Um, So we've had to figure that out. I always tell people that you got to find where the people are who are going to listen, which is why you do the first exercise. It's why we do the target demographic psychoanalytics of the person, you know, like what do they like? What do they listen to? What movies are their favorites? And then we go find where those people live. 
What groups do they live in on Facebook? What groups do they live in on Reddit? And mm. and then go after them and let them know about the show. That's a little different than a company that's probably funded, you know, because we have to be very scrappy and we don't have money to spend on this stuff. Mm. So, you know, if we have money, then it's finding the right podcast that we can buy some promo time and do some swaps with. And, you know, the kind of traditional you build a podcast uh, system. Right. And that's why it's a lot easier for a company like iHeart to put out a podcast and have it be in the charts right away because, you know, they'll just blast the heck out of it over all their channels, you know, and put it in, you know, feeds of other shows. Um, and that's something that we just can't do. So and it's something most people can't do. Yeah, I think, you know, utilizing Facebook groups and Reddit groups is really fascinating. It's, it's a theme that I've heard in a few different places now. How do you go about, you know, approaching those communities and the community owners? Well, I mean, we'll do some paid ads and, you know, but the main thing is creating the content that's going to work and A-B testing it. And, you know, we'll do a test of, I think we did 20 pieces of content for uh, Deep Cover, um, found the five that tested best blasted them, had one that was really getting a good response and then mega blasted that one. So we did it in phases. You know, I'm lucky. I've, I found somebody really good to do that who had not done that for podcasting before. And this is something I tell people all the time. If you can trade out, trade out. So I traded him podcasting stuff and he's, he does marketing stuff for us on, on that level. When you're scrappy and you're not funded, you have to come up with ways to get things done and trading out and doing favors and returning emails to people that you don't know if they'll have any, if they're going to help you out in the future. That's super important. It, it really is. I mean, I, I'm a LinkedIn junkie. I'm on there all day and I'm always reaching out to people and talking and, and getting to know them and responding to emails and, and taking meetings. Even if it's not a meeting, I, I don't think it's going to have do anything. It's important to take them anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly be very generous, you know, with the, with you know your advice and so on with Supercast and just even jumping on with this and, and supporting our efforts for the paid to podcast competition. Let me say this too. I, you know, I really do believe in what you're doing and your mission. And you know what? Liking the people who, who are doing the company goes a long way. I like you. And I've liked everybody we've talked to that, with your company. And, and I can't stress that enough and I, I joke on Twitter that I'm the nicest guy in podcasting because somebody called mm -hmm. me that the other day because I was getting angry and they're like, you can't, you can't take you seriously. You're the nicest guy in podcasting. <laughs> um, but I do think it's important to be nice. And I, you know, I gave a, a high school commencement speech and it was one of the main points I made is just be nice to people. Just <laughs> that's simple. It's something that's lost a lot today, but just, you know, I think it's, it goes a long way. Yeah. And so contrasting, I guess, you know, with what you were seeing in the early days with Stitcher and, you know, tech and anything to do with Max, you know, being the most successful genre, what are you seeing today? I, I did all the podcast upfronts this fall and watched and there was a lot of like celebrity podcasts that I don't think will last very long. Um, here's mm. what happens. And I, I went through this. I used to uh, produce a, a sports talk show in New York City. And we would try out NFL and major league players to do the show. And they really wanted to be on the air until they actually had to do it every day and get up at four in the morning and be at the station every day. And right. I think that with the podcasting, we've seen that with celebrities. A lot of them are like, I got to do a podcast. And then, oh my God, I got to do it every week. 
Oh, yeah. this is, I don't want to do this anymore. So I think we'll see some pod fade with those. I think there's always going to be a place for good storytelling podcasts. I think, you know, hearing more, and I feel like this phrase gets used overly, but I think it's important, you know, diverse voices. The good thing about podcasting is the more niche you are, the better. You know, podcasts that are reaching communities that haven't been reached by traditional media before. Where in traditional media are you reaching out to black women? V- very few places, if any. Um, mm. Podcasting, we can do that. And the thing I like too with podcasting, Podcasting that you know, I know we do is I'm a middle-aged white guy. I don't produce Vanessa Umde. I don't. I you know the, I have a young a young producer who's a female produce that show because that show is for young women, and that's right. what I and that's for me. Like I always want to make sure my production team is you know we've got a, a podcast that we're working on and, and and they wanted a team of color and I'm like oh, cool that's fine with me let's we'll do that because. Yeah. My biggest problem with media is that it's been controlled by old white guys who who think they know what people want to hear. Um, mm-hmm. I remember selling a live podcast series to a company in San Francisco. I'm not going to say what company. And they were like, oh, nobody's going to come to see a live podcast. And, and at one point in the meeting, I said, listen, this isn't for you. Your audience is the are young 20-somethings. Mm-hmm. And you have to you have to like, I don't really care what you what you like and what you think. It's what they like and think. And they mm-hmm. agreed. And guess what? They were a huge success. We sold out every time. But that's the thing. You've got to let the people who know the content or close to the content make the content and not you know, make it for them. I, 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 that drives me nuts. Yeah, this is hugely powerful. And, and I totally agree. You know, the internet, it enables all of these tiny niches or what are seemingly tiny niches to be quite scalable opportunities and, and where, you know, like you can take a, a certain subsection of the population and just sure at a city level or a country level, you know, it might seem small, but then at a global level, you know, like it's actually a lot of people that you can reach. We had a podcast in De- Detroit. It was a morning show in Detroit, uh, Mojo in the morning and mm. Mojo, the only market he's in is Detroit. He's been there forever. His podcast brought in two, three million a month. I mean, mm. this is one city. So yeah, there are markets that you can do that and build that big audience and not have, you know, to worry about like appealing to a mass audience. Yeah. And so what are the other things that you're thinking about when you're enabling, I guess, you know, underrepresented voices like that? So you mentioned, you know, like the production team and making sure that, you know, the people that are producing the content, you know, are people that identify with that content and with that audience. What what other things are running through your head? I'm a bit arrogant. And in, in the fact that I think I know everything about content and what's good and what's bad. And I have to, you know, I have to check myself and, and defer to the folks making the content. Uh, it's sometimes, I mean, I can tell you if it sounds good or not, but you know, it's, it not only speaks to me, but I think that, you know, as I'm looking for more content for our company, we are looking for, for more folks who have a unique voice and that includes old people. Um, I, I, <laughs> old people, I mean, yeah, people over absolutely. 45, that's a, you know, I tell my team all the time, listen, that's a market that still hasn't gotten it yet and they're getting it right now. So yeah. like I'm working on a podcast now where we're interviewing senior citizens about their lives. And like, you know, one of them had his transition when he was 80, you know, this 90 some year old woman who's run a, a dry cleaner and still runs it, you know, mm. that kind of stuff too. I'm, I'm really interested in, and you know, when we talk about diverse voices is also bringing that, you know, yeah, one of the podcasts we signed was... Um, Appalachia Mysteria. You know, I'm from Appalachia. I've spent my whole life hearing West Virginia jokes and, and, you know, we're kind of one of the last areas you're allowed to make fun of. I had found Appalachia Mysteria. This podcast had done amazing numbers on SoundCloud and they'd never thought about 
making it, you know, something that they could make money off of. And we put the first season out and the second season out. It's our top downloaded podcast and we're working on season three right now, but I love it because it's all like all the music is done by folks in West Virginia. The mm. reporters are from West Virginia um, mm. and the stories are from West Virginia, anywhere in Appalachia. We're doing one in Tennessee right now, but you know, these are the other voices that are underserved that uh, I'd like to give voice to. I had never thought of that until you just mentioned it, but it's it's such a no-brainer. You know, the, the medium is so accessible to the older generation and, you know, like they might not all be on it yet, but that will absolutely come in time, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, I have no doubt about it. And I'm thinking of my dad, you know, my, my dad's 85 years old, you know, and he can talk your air off and he's got so many stories from how he you know, was as a kid was evading, you know, the Japanese, you know, in China and, you know, escaping the clutches and then migrated to New Zealand and all the stories of his great, great granddad being a gold mining pioneer in New Zealand, you know, that sort of stuff, you know, I would love to capture at some point um, and has been captured, but yeah, audio is the, the perfect place for those kinds of stories to go. I'll tell you the first time my wife, who's from California, went home to visit my family in West Virginia our neighbor came over and told us a 25 minute story about going down the road to the store to get some eggs full of detail, 25 mm -hmm. minutes. And my wife looked at me afterwards and she goes, I get it. I get why you do what you do. Your people tell stories. They love talk. They love to tell a story. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you should hear like one of his good stories. Cause he's been working on that one for years. I get, it gets better every year when he tells it. Um, and yeah. that's, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for tapping into some of these voices and some of these stories that don't get told. Yeah. And so from a monetization point of view, you know, where have you seen podcast monetization be really successful? And, you know, what, what excites you about, you know, where this is going? Well, I think right now, you know, the ad model is still tough. Uh, CPMs are lower than they should be. Um, I think COVID's been very helpful in the fact that, uh, again, a lot of these folks who make these decisions at agencies and advertisers are, are starting to see, you know what, it's more powerful to have 10,000 podcast listeners than it is to have a million radio listeners because the podcast listeners are real and they're like very niche and I can reach them right. in a way that's more personal. We're not there yet. We're still getting there. I don't plan to, you know, make a lot of money off of our ad sales, you know, this year and, and hopefully next year that'll get better. Uh, you know, I like the hybrid model of pay and free. Um, I think Wondery Plus, you know, companies that are doing that, which is like, hey, here's some free content. If you want stuff first or you want extra stuff, it's a couple bucks a month. I think that's really smart. I don't mind paying a couple bucks a month for content that I really want. And I've seen it be pretty successful for some ex-radio folks. And I think that's another thing I tell radio folks is that, you know, you leave radio with a big audience, you know, don't let them go. You know, they want to hear you. They'll pay a few dollars a month to listen to your show. So I, I think that's the way to go. But I, I think the hybrid is really, to me, the future is kind of the hybrid of, you know, free and paid. Right. In that hybrid model, where do you draw the line in terms of like what you offer free and, you know, what you put behind the paywall? I think it just depends on the personality and the show. I think that with some with celebrities, I know it's known for porn, but OnlyFans is a good example of like people want behind the scenes and they'll pay a couple bucks a month to go behind the scenes. Unfortunately, with that product, it's usually porn stars. But in general, it's a good idea that, you know, if I'm a celebrity, I'm going to do what I do on a podcast. But then, hey, you know, I might 
just like an after show for a morning show. I might have the podcast where I get on the mic. It's, you know, uh, in the morning and, and talk about how shitty my day is and, yeah. you know, and, and how hard it is to be me. The maid didn't show up or whatever celebrities complain about. Um, <laughs> right. But I think, I think that's the kind of content that people want. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's access, right? It's access to somebody that you already identify with and just getting a little bit more insight into their life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing is, as we see, we, you know, we can't tour with podcasts now. I think doing live podcasts, uh, pay-per-view is another thing I haven't seen a lot of folks doing, but the podcast touring industry was about to blow up this year. Like, mm. it, and that's something we, in all of our shows, we have provisions for taking them on tour because people love to go watch a good podcast. Shockingly to me, I, I don't get it, but, uh, I, you know, I did a podcast once, uh, in Boston with Holly from Stuff You Missed in History class, and we had, geez, I think 400 people show up, and I, I'm still like, it's, we're just talking, but, you know, people like it, so I think that's mm. another thing. All right, so we have just clocked over your magical 40-minute mark, um, so... As I mentioned before, Maddie's also a mentor for Supercast's Paid to Podcast competition, uh, where he has very generously offered to provide a year of coaching and consulting calls for our winner, which you know will only make that person's show infinitely better. Um, so we're going to tap into a little bit of that coaching goodness right now uh, and get Maddie's views on the most common things that podcasters get wrong, um, as well as doing a live critique of a supercasters episode as well so that means yep i'm gonna get into the hot seat and maddie's gonna tell me all the things i could be doing better which uh is making me slightly squeamish uh but i'm sure will we'll result in some major improvements um so if that sounds entertaining uh you can listen to maddie's coaching advice by subscribing to supercasters premium head to premium.supercast.com uh, or click the link in the show notes below. Sign up for free, and then you'll have the premium Supercasters feed in your podcast player in just a couple of taps. That's premium.supercast.com. Maddie, always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on. And where can people find out more about you? Sure, you can go to jamstreetmedia.com, and I am on all socials at Maddie, M-A-T-T-Y, Stout, S-T-A-U, D as in dog, T as in Tom. So at Maddie Stout, follow me on Twitter, all, all of them. Same on all of them. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. <laughs>